Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Socks. And I'm Lori Socks. And today we are so fortunate to have our pediatrician, Dr. Kleiner, here with us. She has been our pediatrician since Sophia was born. And she has guided us through their development and their growth with such grace and such goodness. Having her as a part of Liam's team, as a part of his path, was a game changer. She sees Liam as Liam, as a whole child, and she has from day one treated him with the same equanimity that she gave our daughter. It's something that we wish and hope for every parent, every parent of every child, especially parents of children with Down syndrome because Liam's journey, medical at least, has never been Liam with Down syndrome. It's just been Liam. And so she was kind enough to give us her morning to answer some questions and share her knowledge and guidance with all of you. So welcome, Dr. Ilona Kleiner. Hello, Dr. Kleiner. Hello, how are you guys? Good. We're doing How well. Doing really it well. Looks so festive. I love it. I love the red. You look great with the glasses. It looks <laughs> very nice. Thank you. Ha- happy holidays. Happy holidays to you happy as well. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. How's everyone? Everyone staying healthy? Well, uh, well, a little bit of colds on and off, actually. Yeah. It's this time of year, unfortunately, everybody's sick. I mean, you should see the office. Everyone has a runny nose, coughing, congested fever. It is cold and flu season, as we call it winter time, a lot of illness, both common colds from rhinovirus, adenovirus, we're seeing a lot of illness, both um, flu, RSV, and COVID as well. Um, I think it's really important for all of us to get vaccine to protect ourselves and to protect those around us, whether they're elderly, whether immunocompromised. Remember that none of the vaccines necessarily prevent us from getting ill. All of the vaccines prevent us from, from getting severely ill, dying, or hospitalization. It decreases the risk. So we are decreasing the severity of the illness, decreasing the risk of us passing it on to someone. There's a lot of, well, I'm still going to get it. Yes, it's possible you're still going to get it, but you won't be as sick. So we want to protect ourselves. And I believe that Anytime there is a pandemic, like there was with the flu and now with COVID, the COVID vaccine, the flu vaccine, this is going to be an annual thing that we do from now on. So it's not a one-time vaccine that is meant to last forever. All these strains of viruses do mutate and change, and we try to then update the vaccine so that we can cross-react with whatever strain is around during that time period. Yeah. And it's important for individuals with Down syndrome because their immune system 
immune systems compromised. A lot of people's immune systems are compromised, not just because they're on certain medications or they have heart disease or lung disease, or they have cancer, but there are certain illnesses, underlying illnesses that make us immunocompromised as well. I mean, even pregnant women are considered immunocompromised. So even if you're around a healthy pregnant woman, her immune system is not the same because she now is has immunity for two individuals. So even pregnant women are considered immunocompromised. We want to make sure we're keeping everyone safe around us. Yeah. Even at my job where we don't have any COVID protocol anymore. So if someone has a cold, it's kind of up to them to test and then, right. you know, who, who who's testing? Maybe they're not. Maybe they're just, you know, if you're home testing, how accurate is that? And then am I wearing a mask? But, you know, I think at this time, if we can just let everybody do what they're comfortable with and right. and if they want to wear a mask, then encourage that. And, and that's great, you know. Yeah. Hope that everyone's just basically um, being aware and being conscious and just not being around other people when they're sick. So whether they have COVID or the flu, they don't feel well, hopefully they'll stay home and wear a mask and just be a little more conscientious not to spread whatever virus they have. So um, it it is hard to make everyone test for anything. And you just hope that people um, are not only thinking about themselves, but everyone around them as well. One of the big, just jumping right in, one of the big fears with Down syndrome is health. And it's actually one of the heavy-handed fears that are instilled in in parents, you know, from prenatal as... Right off the bat. Right off the bat, you know, we're told just a a very um, bleak future for our children and as as we've been on this path for 13 years now we've discovered that a lot you know a, a lot of the reason be, behind some of those um, diagnoses that were given or fears that were given were maybe archaic because of limits that were put, uh, you know, on our kids medically a long time ago. And also the reality, like statistic wise, the difference between a child with Down syndrome and a neurotypical child that there, there's not necessarily that much of a difference. But the the medical support and the medical journey that parents have has such an impact on their child's life, on, you know, the potential, on, on just, just the quality of life, even the opportunities they receive as far as education and, and jobs and as they get older and transition. We have always felt very fortunate to have you as our pediatrician. You are a phenomenal human such a professional in the medical community, but also the care that you take. And when we were in the NICU, we had some not very kind conversations and comments given to us. And then we switch over to you and your your guidance with Liam has always been so loving and so honest and so thoughtful that I, I just, we've always wished that for other parents. That's very kind. Thank you. But I do have to say that a lot of it is you guys. I think you hit it on the nail that Liam is lucky to have you because I think he's doing as well as he's he is doing because of the support he has, because of the way you treat him. 
and the fact that you advocate for him and you want the best for him, you treat him exactly like you treat your daughter. And that is important that, that he has your support, that he has people behind him that want the best for him. I think with Down syndrome, there's such a huge array of disabilities and nor like a child could be unfortunately very disabled and not whether it is physically or hearing, vision, cardiac, their motor abilities, and you want the best for your child. So you not only advocate, but you get him to therapy early so that he can reach his potential. And every person's potential is different. No matter if they're neurotypical, neurodiverse, everyone's potential is different. So you want to give him all that you can so that he reaches his goals. And that's from the beginning. That's from therapy in the beginning with feeding therapy. That's to make sure he can see, that he can hear, that he doesn't have any cardiac issues. Um, all those things that we took precautions for in the beginning. And obviously, things change as he gets older. You know, it goes from medical to social to different things like any child in different stages of development. The key is that he has you guys behind him fighting for him every single day. And that's very important. Well, what you said really um, sparked my mind of what Liam has taught me as an advocate for him, that I advocate for Sophia. Right. Sometimes in a different way. Absolutely. Because she's a girl. Because she doesn't have Down syndrome, because she's just who she is, yeah. right? It could be a, a, an array of reasons I advocate differently for her, and then and then also the same in other ways. But it taught it teach he teaches me that as a parent we just support our children, right? That's you know as physicians as parents that's our job is for them to know we're there for them we're there with them we are their rock we are their you know, always there. So if they need something, we make sure that they get it, whether it's medical, whether it is eating, whether it's physical, whatever it is, that emotional support, that's our job. And you're not going to treat him any differently than you do Sophia, just maybe differently in what his needs are. That's all. But that's the most important thing is that each child's potential is different, and we are there to make sure that they reach it as their advocates, both medically and my, you know, from my perspective and from yours emotionally, uh, socially, and just having that care, knowing that he is loved, that you are there for him is more important than anything else. I think of when Lori was just talking about from the beginning, our experience with you, you were very honest with us every step of the way as well with Sophia. When we talked about certain things to look out for, thyroid or cardio issues, possible issues, you did give us a little bit of stats. Like, okay, it could be, I don't know if even a number was put on it, but it was just like there could be an increased risk. I think what can affect parents is when they're given actual statistical risks, like twice as likely to do this or whatever, it puts on a parent this weight of this is going to happen or, oh my gosh, this is right around the corner, right? But when you look at it, as a medical professional probably, you see that, well, those issues maybe are more common or a higher increased chance, but still, it's still, a, the percentage is lower, is low than what it feels to a parent, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it gets overwhelming. You have a child that's born with anything that's different. You, you're in the hospital, you're like, you know, he, he can have leukemia, he can have not walk, he may not talk, all these things that you're hearing get overwhelmed. And the key 
with every child is taken day by day, treat them the same way you would treat any other child. Um, I treat all my patients the same way. Treat them as a whole person. I treat him and you guys as a family. And there are increased risks that we need to watch for. And we need to do things that to catch things early, whether it's with him or someone else. If a child isn't walking when I expect them to walk, I'm going to send them for physical therapy. If he's not able to feed himself when I expect him to feed himself, I'm going to send him for occupational therapy. I'm not going to treat him any differently. I know his risk. I take that into account. I'll be more aware. I'll be more conscious of other risks, cardiac, leukemia, all those things that we are concerned about. And we take it step by step. Um, but we treat him the same way. And we look out for, you know, preventative medicine to make sure that he doesn't get sick. At the same time, when he's ill, we treat the illness and otherwise treat him as a person. That's the most important thing. I think with any, like you said, whether they're neurodiverse, neurotypical, whether they're uh, physically disabled, whatever it is, we are treating that individual the same way we treat everyone else. One of my first experiences that I really remember in the office was one of his appointments and he had spent 75 days in the NICU and you know he had all of that everything that from his birth on was under our belts and we didn't get to see you until he was out of the NICU because in the NICU you know as soon as the diagnosis came through there was a huge shift from the nurses and the doctors and the entire all the energy went out of the room all of the hope everything and then we got Liam home and the first thing that you did that just really opened things back up is that growth chart and you said here's the growth chart this is and you have the I don't know if I'm going to call it the right thing but the neurotypical just the regular growth chart and you and that's what you gave me first you mapped him on that you mapped him on that and I what that did for me just it wiped away so much of the negative that we'd been fed and it put him just right there with Sophia and then you said and then I'm going to show you over here on the down syndrome chart where he is and I'm always going to keep this unless he falls off of it and then we'll move over and he never fell off he still goes by the one that Sophia goes by. And, and that, that was, that was a, I guess, a look into how you saw him. You just saw Liam. And I just wish that was everybody's story for, for their experience with their pediatrician, because it, it really changed, it really changed the course for us. If you want to talk about treating us as a family, it, it changed our course. Because you do want to treat him as Liam. You want to treat him, this is normal, like you would treat any other child. And then you deal with whatever issues come up, regardless of what it is, whether it's Sophia or him, right? He is was a normal little infant, a toddler. He grew up and a lot of what he went through were typical things that you had to deal with. Feeding, sleeping, temper tantrums, teething, you know, uh, friendships, all those things. He had other issues we need to deal with and we dealt them as they came up, but we can't focus on that, what could be all the negative. We need to treat him like a little boy and now like a teenager um, because that's who he is. We need to normalize his life. 
We need to make him enjoy life with everyone around him versus putting him into a certain group or a class and isolating him. And I mean, there's enough worries as a parent, you know, you're constantly concerned about everything, about his health, about his interaction, about how other people are going to treat him. But you need to treat him normally because you want him to be able to interact with other individuals as normal as possible. Well, the If We Knew Then title of our podcast kind of implies you know, I mean, this is how we've had it, is that when you look back, you go, why did I fear so much about, and this could be so many parts of your life, right? Any part of your life could be the first day of a job or something, you know, (laughs) you look back and go, I didn't have to fear all the things my mind came up with to fear. And when I look back, I, and then I see Liam now, and I I say, you know, sadly, I mean, Liam's a very healthy kid. And sadly, you have probably many, many children that are are sick, children, you know, that are dealing with health issues um, that are very difficult situations. Um, And that was what I look back at and say, no, Liam's not automatically the sickly boy that we need to worry, worry, worry about. And and, and I see with with other kids with Down syndrome or people we've talked to, you know, it's... um, this worry, though, that, you're, that at least we were given in the NICU, I mean, I think maybe compounded by the fact that he was, you know, a few months so early. Immature, yeah. um, but in my mind, I was like, wow, how, how are we going to get this health thing together with Liam? And I'm not worrying. I don't worry about that. I think part of it is the shift of focus that you gave us. I think it's very important because there was nothing that was insurmountable. Like we, the way you presented us, you know, something that might be an increased risk. It wasn't something that we carried into every day. It was like you said, if something came up, then we ran a test and we looked into it. And, you know, there were there were certain things that we we needed to address, but it wasn't in the forefront. And just like everyone else, when we got to it, we got there. And then we dealt with it. Then I, I, because we had that with his ears and it wasn't like the fear that drove us the whole time was this is going to be a problem. It was something that we took each step of the way when it was first, it was ear infections. And then they kind of came a little bit lo- closer together than you wanted them to, but you kept an eye on it, you know, and then you sent us to the ear, nose and throat. I think at that time, a lot had been happening maybe with all the ear infections. And I remember just how comforting you were about the surgery, telling me lots of kids get this surgery and made it to where I was like, you know, any surgery, any procedure that your children have is going to be scary, but you did, you just, you just normalized it. This is, this is something that happens. And and this this is is what's going to happen. That happens to kids. And, and you did, and you told me, it's not like we close our eyes to any risk, but you told me what was going to happen. And because it was done in the way that you always do it. I don't know how to explain that. It, it was just like, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. When we have children, there's always a concern. There's always fear. Um, how's the first day of school going to be? Are they going to make friends? Um, are they going to understand that lesson plan? Is someone going to bully them? Are they going to be healthy? What happens if they get sick? Did they break something? Um, does this fever turn to meningitis? I mean, there's so many fears on a regular basis as a parent. And 
it's scarier and there's more fears when your child has any underlying medical issue. It's very easy to get overwhelmed and it's very easy to go down kind of this path where everything is scary and what if. I think you have to look at the positive. I think you have to look at your specific child, Liam, as a whole versus going into the statistics and the theoretical risk and treat him day by day, treat him, be proactive. I think being proactive is very important with children. Preventative medicine is very important, but it's easy for us to get overwhelmed with everything. So you just have to kind of, you need some, you need the support that you guys gave him. And then you need someone to kind of also be, okay, he's good. Like you said, he's healthy. Liam is a healthy boy. And thank goodness, because there are worse things that people need to deal with really sick children that medicine doesn't have any treatment for sometimes, which is really scary. So we take the good, we, and we take the bad, and we kind of, you know, deal with it on a daily basis. No one goes through life without getting some type of illness, some type of injury, some, you know, whether it's emotional, physical, something happens to all of us, and we deal with it day by day. You can't get overwhelmed. It's too much. You, you, you need to kind of go, okay, let's look at the big picture and everything's good. He has a loving family. He's healthy. Everything's good. And we, that's what we go with. So much of what we love about you is, as a pediatrician is probably just who you are, you know, just you being you. But um, how was Down syndrome specifically presented to you in medical school? Yeah, maybe could be could you introduce yourself a little like tell tell our listeners a little bit uh, about yourself and then and then uh, and then answer that question because we we skipped that yeah, part. Yeah, we did kind of skip the intro. Certainly. So, I've been a pediatrician in Sherman Oaks for over 20 years. Um I went to UCLA for both my undergraduate studies and medical school and afterwards I did my residency at Cedars, so been in LA for a very long time and have been practicing at Pediatric Associates now for a very long time as well, over 20 years, which will obviously age and date me, but um, that's where I am. Medical school, I think, has changed a lot over the last 20 years. I think uh, when I went to medical school, um, a lot of it was statistics. A lot of it was numbers. Very Okay, you have a child with this, don't forget to do this, this, you have an increased risk of this disease, you have an increased risk of this illness, make sure that you screen children, you know, at, at this age, and all of that data is great, because I need to know that as a physician, when to be concerned, make sure I'm not missing milestones, when to screen children, but what medical school doesn't teach you is how to doctor, um, that kind of personal touch, that emotional, that I don't think anyone can teach that. I think there's certain things that are innate to people. I mean, there are people who are extremely skilled, knowledgeable physicians, no much more than I could ever dream of, but they don't have that personal touch or they don't have that intuition. I think with medicine, everything's not black and white. And that's why you can't put everything into a logarithm. There is that going into a room and seeing that a child is ill or a child is healthy. When I go into a room and I talk to parents or children before I even examine a child, I'm observing. I'm observing their interaction with their 
uh, family. Um, are they scared? Are they feel fearful when they're talking? Are they having a shortness of breath? Are they grimacing um, when I touch? Like I can get a lot just from observation before I examine a child, just from hearing them talk before I even do anything physically to them. And those are things I don't think are necessarily, or I shouldn't say they're not taught, they're difficult to teach because those things are individual. It's easy to teach physiology, anatomy, histology, get those basics, but then there's that human aspect that, um, not, I think that's more difficult. Did you have any experience with someone with Down syndrome prior to medical school? Prior to medical school, not personally in terms of family members or friends. No, I mean, obviously I've seen people as, but no, not someone that interacted with on a regular basis. Because we know how much we've been affected just living with Liam, obviously, and we see how his friends see him as just one of the guys, you know, and I always feel like the kids in his class are so lucky to have him in that classroom. And that's, there's going to be uh, future pediatricians that are going to school with him. And I can only imagine how they'll go into medical school and what their thoughts will be because of their experience with Liam and then how that will spread to, to their profession. Absolutely. I think the impact that Liam's going to have on these kids is much larger than they realize, their parents realize, and probably much larger than they, the impact that they have on him. What he's going to teach them in terms of how to interact with people, how to listen, how to be a good person, a caring person, respectful, understanding of someone's needs. Those are difficult things to teach unless you interact with someone who needs it. And I think his peers are lucky to have him in his class because they're going to change who they are for the rest of their life. And their parents probably don't even realize it. Um, it's something that you cannot put your fingers on. It's not something you can teach. It's something that, and you probably see yourself, the peers, the kids that interact with him, the kids that don't. Well, I think of the kids that care for him and, and help him if he needs help. Uh, I, I always kind of go back and forth. Are they these kids going, oh, I'll help Liam because I just want to help him. He's my buddy. Or, or also they see Liam helping others. Like Liam's such, such a caring human, you know, and that would be for any caring human, how you can pass that on to someone else just by showing someone uh, how to care for to someone. Be kind. How to, to be kind. Yep. We talk about inclusion and Liam being in the classroom Everybody is benefiting. Liam's benefiting because he's receiving, actually receiving an education, but then the other people around him, the teachers and the students are, are getting so much more. I can always see it on their faces. There's such a difference when they first see Liam and then as they get to know Liam and then they'll be like, hey, did you know that if you look up Liam and I'm like, yeah, I know that. Like Liam's also very humble. Like he's just, he's, he's like a, he's just a good, good person, but for you, though, you've always had your finger on the pulse of inclusion, and you've been a really uh, profound advocate and guide as far as our our journey. Like you're not you're not just like let's take um, let Liam's blood pressure and how much he weighs and do those stats. You always ask those questions of how he's doing in school. Does he have friends? Is what's his class? You ask about the IEPs. You ask about his supports. And you've even written letters for our IEPs when it came to speech. Um, I don't know if every parent knows to ask for that or if they even receive anything close to that. But your dialogue has always been 
an inclusive one. Where does that come from? I, I think it's the way I see every child. Um, I'm not sure if that goes back to the what was instilled in me as a child from my parents. I I'm not. I, I don't know where it personally comes from, but in terms of the way I treat all children, I see the child as a whole. When I see Liam, I see Liam who happens to have Down syndrome as you know just just happens to have it. So I need to make sure that he is healthy. He's eating well, he's staying active, he's sleeping, he's socializing, he's not depressed, he's not anxious, he's not everything about him. It is not just medical, it is for him to be healthy as a whole, we need to treat him as his mental health, his social health, his emotional health, not only his physical health. And I think that goes for him, that goes for Sophia, that goes for every individual. Um, that's the only way someone could be healthy is as a whole individual, not just, okay, does he have a murmur? Does he, you know, what's his weight? That That's just part of his health. I think part of it is training, obviously, um, both med school residency and part of just what we do as pediatricians. I think pediatricians generally treat children as a whole, and that's the way it's supposed to be. What did your parents instill in you? Um, I think my parents instilled in me the most is hard work. Um, I think I um, have a good work ethic because of my parents. I think my parents instilled in me um, inclusion, that we are all the same. Um, no one is more than or less than someone else. Um, and it is important to treat every single person with respect. I think that's the biggest thing my parents instilled in me. That's who you are. That's what you that's what you've given us in, in this in this journey with Liam. Even when you say mental health, like honestly, our experience with Liam and with individuals, the first thing that they would always say is happiest people ever. This, you know, he's an angel and all of these, you know, sound bites. Very rarely do people even think about thinking about his mental health. Right. Or thinking of like Dr. Kleiner said, like it, it, make sure he's not depressed. You know, that's yeah. something that yeah, Liam can, Liam has the whole gamut of emotions, you know. Of course, right, yeah. He just has a little bit of a challenge maybe expressing them or putting them into That's words. That's true. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk on that a little bit for parents, like mental health of an individual with Down syndrome? Or I guess when we're talking inclusion, any child really. Yeah, I think we need to look at cues with children because they will not always express how they feel. And some of this because they actually... One, they may not know how to, to express themselves, but sometimes they don't want to hurt their parents or they don't want their parents to worry. Um, they don't have someone that they can necessarily go to. So we need to watch for the way they act, the way their eye contact, how they're socializing, how they're eating, their weight, their sleep. All of those things will reflect their mental health. If they're eating while they're sleeping well, um, they're socializing, they're not scared to speak out, they're not, those are all signs of a healthy whole child. But if you see a child who's sitting in the corner not making eye contact, their weight is either very, you know, going up rapidly or going down rapidly, those are all concerning um, things that we look at when we look at a child and their mental health, like, hey, what's going on? Something happening in school? 
Do you not like your teacher? Are you being bullied? Is something happening at home? Is a parent sick or are there family issues? Are there financial issues at home that can affect a child? All these things that parents sometimes try to protect their children from, children hear things and see things that we may not realize as an adult. They feel it and it comes across in their mental health, in their physical health, it comes across in their demeanor, it comes across in the way they socialize with their peers, things they say and how they act. So um, again, a lot of times when I walk into the room, I'm just observing, I'm just looking at the child to see how they interact to make sure that things aren't popping up to me that I may be concerned about. The one place where I see the difference between Liam and Sophia is that ability to, if I say, I'll ask him a question and it's usually like, I'm good. He doesn't either not finding the words or knowing the words or how to express the words. uh, It's more of a challenge to get something out of him. Do you, do you have any advice for what parents should, how they should get that information? And then what should they do with it? So I think it's hard to, you know, how's your day? Fine. What'd you do? Nothing. Those are typical answers that all, you know, parents get from their kids. So it's getting more details. So, you know, oh, what'd you do during lunch? Did you eat with someone? It's trying to get details, trying not to ask questions that have yes, no answers to get more details. And getting into a habit of talking to children on a regular basis so they feel comfortable. And a lot of times just telling your children about your day, because then it will start. It's not just about you drilling them. What's new? What what happened? How was class? What'd you do? And then parents, the kids are overwhelmed, like, I'm fine, mom, dad, leave me alone. It's just talking, oh, today I had such a hard day, you, you know, I'm tired because of this, or oh, you know what, my friend told me this joke, whatever it is just conversing with your child on a regular basis, they feel comfortable talking to you so that they know that you are there for them, you're supportive. And it's okay to vent at home. And it's okay to complain, whether it's just venting or that they need that extra support. I think approaching children, not only when you see something bad or good, but also on the opposite, so they feel comfortable talking to you all the time. And Sometimes parents get busy with work, with just getting overwhelmed with life. I think it's important for all of us to take time to sit as a family, talk to each other, and really pay attention to words or actions. Sometimes a child can't express how they feel, are scared to express how they feel, don't know, don't know how to, even if they're they verbally can. So you have to look at their actions? Are they making eye contact? Are they sitting in their room? Are they not wanting to talk? Has their daily routine changed? Were they usually, you know, were they doing things they don't want to do on weekends anymore? Again, observing is very important. Look at your child, how they leave the car and walk to class. Are they excited? Are they happy? Are they scared? Is their head down? Um, How they come home from after school, are they excited? Are they walking with someone? Are they running to you because they're excited to come home and tell you about their day? All those things will reflect on how they feel. And again, I think as parents, we need to observe our kids just like I do when I walk into a room and observe what a child looks like when they're interacting with me. Are they making eye contact? How they're responding to their parents as well. I feel like when Liam gets overwhelmed by his emotions, he does this eye flutter, close his eye. 
Yeah, and, he'll and you'll be talking. He'll close his eyes. I have to watch myself from saying, "Hey, look at the person in the eyes," because you know, I'm, it's like saying, telling someone, "Come on, give me a smile." Like it's like he's telling me something. It's funny because there's a balance. It's like part. Sometimes you want to encourage eye contact in certain situations, and then other times there's yeah. a difference in his eye flutter, and there's a difference in his, you know, just not making Looking eye away. contact. Mm-hmm. And you guys know that because you've seen and you know when he does certain eye movements, eye fluttering, doesn't make eye contact because he's preoccupied and you say, hey, look at that person versus he's anxious, he's nervous, um, he's scared. And again, that's because you know your child, you're paying attention and that's important. You don't want to push him to do something that he's uncomfortable doing. You want to be supportive of him and say, hey, it's okay. I understand how you feel and that's okay right now. You know, I'm here to support you or I'm here to comfort you. We're going to get through this together. And here's a big one is sex education because Liam is 13 and I know like expression. I, I, I've, I see individuals with down syndrome who are older and I feel like, you know, there's that milestone and that community. I, I am so hopeful because there's so many different people that I'm in contact with now. So I see that like communication, the eye contact, the like independence, the ownership. I, I see that nurtured and I see that on the forefront. Yes. Right now, you know, he's a seventh grader in middle school and sex education is a thing. And, and this is a great, his school now is so inclusive. So we have a lot of conversations and, you know, they did ask us about the sex education uh, class. Do we want to include Liam? And of course we said, absolutely. Liam is a 13 year old boy. He's feeling all the feelings. He's experiencing all the experiences but sex education and puberty is scary enough for any child. I do believe that those um, challenges of communication, of uh, the different challenges that we experience with having the extra chromosome do factor in. And maybe it's one of those things where it's just a fear, you know, one of those fears that we have, but they do factor in as we approach it. What kind of advice do you have on sex education and puberty? I think... It is making sure that he understands what's happening to his body because he is going through puberty like every other teenage boy. The hormones are changing. He's having those feelings, physical changes, emotional desires, but he may not understand exactly what's happening or how to deal with those feelings or um, what he should do. And I think it's very important to speak to him on a level that he understands. How are you feeling? What does this mean? What's happening to your body? This is normal and this is okay. And making him understand what he's going through is perfectly appropriate. But he might need that extra kind of going through things and reading some extra books of, hey, this is happening to my body and this is okay. And when these changes happen, this is normal because he may not understand. I mean, as is, it's hard for any teen going through puberty. What in the world's happening to my body? All of a sudden, I'm, you know, my hands are longer. My whole, everything feels awkward and weird, and our we don't we're not comfortable in our own skin. But making sure that he's aware that this is a normal part of growing up, of changing from being a child to a man, going through these changes is okay. And not knowing what to do with them is also okay, right? I mean, what what do you do with the, these feelings? And, and none of us know. And each person reacts differently. And it's kind of that 
okay, I feel weird in my own skin. What do I do? And, you know, sometimes it's up to adulthood where we don't feel comfortable in our own skin. And that's okay. Well, like you said, when those feelings do come up and he expresses those feelings or anyone expresses those feelings, it's so healthy to come from the place of this is normal. Yeah. This is this is all okay. These feelings, like we can talk about this stuff. And it's just now how do we direct these feelings and how do we then outwardly communicate, you know, that appropriately to yeah. people, you know? So, uh, and Liam catches things right away a lot of times. Sometimes, like with his uh, multiplication tables, we went over those a bunch, but then he got them. Sometimes we just have to go over it a little more. Yeah. And that's okay. That's with anyone. Some, you know, math is hard. Uh, syntax is difficult. Um, puberty sucks. I mean, yeah. it's normal. And um, it is good to review it, to normalize it, to ask him what his concerns are, what his fears are, what, you know, what is he feeling? Um, what does he understand that's happening? What he doesn't understand that's happening. And with any child, neurotypical, neurodiverse, that varies in a child's understanding of what's happening to them during puberty. The feelings that they have, the physical changes that they're going through. Is this normal? Is this not normal? What's going to happen? Why do I feel like this? Um, those are all conversations that I think now people are more comfortable having with their children. 50 years ago, I don't know how many parents had conversations with their children about puberty. Um, so I think open conversations about your body and changes and feelings are things that we need to do, just like we talk about, you know, multiplications or anything that happens in school. With other, you know, seventh graders, I see like with his friends, they have this, um, you know, typical teenager behavior would be like, I'm not going to reveal that I think that person's cute. I'm not going to talk about what my my body's going through. Whereas Liam, because he's so present and he's just, he doesn't, there's, you he's know, honest. no errors. He's very honest. He will, ex he, he, I, we, we joke with him and we're like, Liam, you got to get game. You have to have some game because just like, he'll see a pretty girl and he'll be like, I want you to come over. And we're like, you, you yeah. can't cause now you're 13. And that really makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. And I, so I feel like that is the, that is one of the challenges is to just be able to, cause I did have a conversation with him the other day and I just saw him, like, he didn't want to ask a question. He hasn't asked any questions, but I've noticed things. But I did notice when I said, hey, you know what? Are you experiencing this? Is this going on in your body? I want you to know that's normal. And it was almost like... His eyes were like, what? Okay. You know, there were, he still experienced that same relief. Because I do believe, like, his neurotypical friends they've seen the movies they've heard the stories they've you know whatever they have older siblings older siblings right they've gone through this who talk about it in a different way and just because Liam has not only a sister you know she's not and she's not going to just have that conversation with him and it's not a conversation I don't think it's a conversation in the world or maybe his friends might even be afraid like they might joke around and talk about their bodies but they might not feel comfortable saying that to him hmm. even though they're experiencing the same things could you give us a list of books that we could put in the show notes that would be good tools for us to use to to talk 
Absolutely. There is um, a list of puberty books, both for boys and girls that I can send you so that um, your audience can have access to that I think are great for uh, kids to review with their parents about puberty and how their body's changing and what they're going through. And through a filter of of Down syndrome, is there anything that you would change with the conversations? I think the most important thing with Down syndrome is making sure he understands. Because again, with Down syndrome, there is also a different range of understanding with children. So I think it's kind of, okay, what are you feeling? And finding out what he understands that's happening to his body and what he thinks is going to happen. And talking about it on a level that he comprehends. And that varies from child to child. And for neurotypical as well. I mean, that varies. Some kids totally understand what, you know, talk, I'm going to sidetrack, but a menstrual period in girls and other girls are like, I have no idea what that means. And where is the blood coming from and what's happening and why? So I think it is talking on a level that the child understands and that changes. You start slowly and then six months later, you readdress it again and see, okay, where are they now in terms of their needs, understanding, and wanting to hear it. A lot of children don't want to have this conversation with parents. They, It's awkward. And as curious as they are, they rather be misinformed by a friend than get the truth from their parents because it's not a conversation they want to have. Um, and later on, going from puberty to actually ha- talking about sex is even more awkward, where the kids are like, please, parent, like, don't tell me. I don't want to talk about it. It's very uncomfortable. But you want your child to be informed, you want your child to be protected and safe and understand their body, understand what's normal and not normal, and to be safe. It's funny, because when you were saying that about the menstrual cycle, and some girls will say, I don't even know where's this blood. Historically, there were times when women were not told about yeah, their bodies. Didn't talk about they didn't it. have, they didn't even know when they were pregnant. They didn't know what right. got them pregnant. And so this is not something that we want to repeat. We've kind of, we've stepped away from that. And you can see where like, that's a, that's a, I yeah, always, like, I try to make the correlation between, you know, just to normalize that we, we're all having this experience. And just because you have Down syndrome doesn't make it this like such a different course, such a different path. The hormones are still there. The changes are there. The feelings are still there. And the physical changes that he's going to go through are going to happen. So you want him to understand what's happening to his body is normal. You want to talk to him on a level that he understands of what's going on. And that conversation will change in six months. So you start slowly and then you readdress it and ask the same questions in a different way to make sure he is aware of what's happening as his body is changing. And I wanted, I wanted to know, because we talked about, you know, the medical profession has changed so much when it comes from in the last 20 years, what changes have you seen? Um, I think the biggest changes in medicine is probably that human aspect that we're going from like you couldn't really talk to your doctor as a human being, basically. You just, you came there with, okay, this hurts. Or I broke this or, you know, I have appendicitis or, you know, I, whatever it is. And that problem was solved versus talking to your doctor as a whole, how you're feeling. And I think that's where medicine has changed. 
overall. And that goes both for pediatrics and internal medicine, geriatrics, I think even, you know, surgeons, I, I think that that's where medicine has really evolved into something better. I think people don't want to question their doctor. They they believe just it's just like the school system with like education. Like you don't there are certain people that you don't think that you should question or you know you you have a reverence for that position. We have been very fortunate to have found you. So there's never any time to you know to to ever have doubt on on your guidance. Um you've always you've been open cuz we've even brought you that breakdown from the Down syndrome clinic to you. And you were very open to look and you, but the great thing was you were like, oh yes, usually this is when we do those things. Usually they were already on your mind. Um, they were already part of Liam's plan. Uh, do you have any advice? Like what should parents expect from their doctor? What, and then what do they do? And because I do believe that a lot of the conversation, especially when it's Down syndrome, you know, in other parts of the world, in other parts of this country, they don't have the advocates in their life. They don't have the equality, the equanimity. So for those parents who are advocates for their child, who aren't getting that communication, what kind of advice can you give them? I think there's so much information that now is available on the internet that I think a lot of parents are well-educated and I think it's perfectly fine to question your doctor. I think it's perfectly fine to go into a doctor's office with concerns and say, hey, how about this? Or I read this, or I want to know about this. And you want to see how your doctor reacts and if they're receptive and if they're supportive. If you're scared to question your doctor, there's an issue. If you're scared to have a conversation with your doctor, there's an issue. That's the first thing. So I think a parent should not be hesitant about asking questions and making sure that when they leave the office, all their questions have been addressed. It is also okay for a physician to say, I don't know. Nobody knows everything. And I think physicians need to know the limitations. And it is okay for a physician to say, yes, I know we're looking to that, or I wasn't aware. Let me read up on it. Let me find out. Um, those doctors who don't know their limitations, I think those doctors who do not want to listen to their patients may not be a good fit. You know, that I think it's important that you find someone that's a good fit for you. And that's different for every person. I may not be everyone's cup of tea. And that that's normal, right? That's the way it's supposed to be. You find someone that you click with, you feel heard. I think it's important for a patient, a parent to be heard, to feel that their concerns are being addressed, their child is being, tr being treated as a whole, nothing's being overlooked. It is okay to question your doctor, it's okay to bring things up, and it's okay for the doctor to say, I didn't know. There's no way that everyone that's, someone knows everything, okay? That, that's impossible. I, I mean, someone asked me to do neurosurgery, and I said, yes, I'd have an issue, that would be a problem, okay? There's, I, that means there's something wrong with me, okay? Nobody knows everything, and it's okay to be aware of your limitations. I think that's very important as a human being in everything. And then you're able to look things up and have an open, honest conversation about what's appropriate for your for the child at that particular moment once you address it together and aren't informed together as a parent-doctor team, if you will. 
Well, you know, I, I, you're right when it says sometimes it doesn't click, right? And you can be, um, when you talked about, Lori, reverence to maybe teachers or doctors, you can be respectful and also thankful for someone's knowledge. Right. Uh, but just like with a barber or a masseuse or the mechanic you're dealing with, if you feel like it's not a, a two-way street or, or you're not comfortable with that relationship, it's always okay, and I'm glad you said it, to venture onto another path with maybe someone different. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that physician is a bad physician. They may be exceptional. They just may not be exceptional for you. And that's okay. Um, different people feel different, comfortable with uh, different individuals. And I think that's why certain people gravitate to certain people, both um, in a, on a personal level or professional, whatever it is. And that's normal. That's just the way we are. That's part of our personality and being a human. Um, that's okay. Having like Google and knowing like when you have an issue with your body, you go, oh, let me Google something. You can find all these things. I have to think that your knowledge has got to be so good for you personally, like even with your daughter, like to, just to be able to like go, oh, like I kind of know what's going on. Going on. Right. I wish I was a pediatrician. Right. <laughs> Not really. No, <laughs> you have to kind of filter out all the noise sometimes that you do get from the internet. I mean, anyone can post anything. I, I can post it on the internet. And the fact that I have an MD behind my name, you know, people are going to believe what I say. No one knows if I'm educated, my education, my knowledge, my bias, which a lot of people have a certain bias. So I will make a statement and they'll, and other people may quote me, uh, which may not always be correct. So you really have to be cautious, everyone, um, with any type of research we do on the internet, whether it's medical or for our cars or whatever it is, because you don't know who's posting what and where the, you know, where they're getting their information and who these individuals are. So I think all of us need to be able to filter a lot of that extra noise and being comfortable with our knowledge and being comfortable, again, with things we don't know and know where to get the accurate information, because now there's so much out there that isn't always accurate. I think that's a really good uh, point to bring up that the bias, like to especially like what I experience with Down syndrome. Yeah, you know, I've done, I've, I've been able to do some research and go. That's where that comes from. That's where you know, the re the the ratio of children who died because of heart defects was really impacted by the fact that they wouldn't give heart surgeries to babies who had Down syndrome. Because they thought their lifespan wasn't going to be long enough, so they didn't want to waste a heart, which is right now. Well, even today, you know, children can be taken off or put down a list of, you know, any organ donation because of a lot of different reasons. And that's yes. something that needs to, people need to be aware of when it comes to yeah. Down syndrome as well. That was one of the statistics that I was just like, if we can educate each other and go, it's not that our children are this, it's these actual things impacted our child's journey impacted the people before us who came before us with Down syndrome. This is why they weren't able to learn in school because they weren't given an education or they were institutionalized. And that, I mean, you put any human in an institution Absolutely. under those conditions, there's not going to be much of a difference. Exactly. And that's why inclusion is so important. And sometimes that means a full-time aid, not a full-time aid with different type of physical neuro neurodiverse children. I think 
the more they're included in a regular classroom, the more they're included in normal physical education, activities outside of school, that will give them the best potential for socialization, academic, future, just being, you know, a good contributing human being to society. Yeah, and inclusion uh, just uh, it's so much affects that's the way it affects Liam is the opportunities that will be given him. And will decrease the bias of those people around him because they're learning so much from him. So those children that are interacting with him, those friends that he has, they're going to grow up to be different people. They're not going to have the same bias as individuals who did not get the opportunity to be around Liam because Liam did impact their life in such a positive way. Well, you have impacted our life and you've impacted Liam's life. And we, we, we've been talking about you from day one on this podcast. And we're so fortunate to have you come and give us your hour because we know that you are so busy. And you talk about like having all your questions answered. It's nice to know that you're there for our questions. And we appreciate you so much. And um, just thank you. You're, you're a gift, Dr. Kleiner. You're a real gift. And we love you. I, I really, really appreciate that. That that means a lot to me. So uh, I'm grateful to have you guys as my patients and to know your family and your children. They don't realize how lucky they are to have you guys as parents because not everyone has that type of support, loving family and advocates. And you guys are have always been advocates for both of your children and that's important. So I praise you. Um, I'm happy to know you. And someday your kids will say thank you if they haven't yet. <laughs> we hope they'll say thank you someday. But <laughs> really, it is a pleasure to know you. So thank you as well. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod. And you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod. Or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Amazon.